Psalm 63, in Psalm 63, the psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. That's what we're doing this morning. It says, I will praise you as long as I live. Let's keep those words in mind. Keep those words in mind as we play this and sing this next song. Every part of our praise. 
awesome name, Jesus. And what a great God, the God that is our Father. What would we do without that awesome Father that we have? Such a loving, gracious Father. As we come now to a time for prayer, the children come and, and bow before us here this morning. Parents, if you want to come. Anyone else that would like to come and kneel at the altar, please come. This is our time to bow before God and worship to Him. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these songs that remind us of how awesome you are, God. You are the God that created each and every one of us. And your name is above all names. Your name is holy. Your name is majestic. Your name is so awesome that we, we get emotional when we think about who you are. What you've done for us. What you continue to do for us on a daily basis, Father. You're the God that saved us. Saved us for the things that we have done that were against you. And that you have forget, forgiven us of those things and you have forgotten them, Father. For they in the past and, and now we live for the day that we can serve you and to worship you and to bow before you. And we thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to come as a collective group and to pray before you. And to know that our hearts and minds are lifted up and and sync with uh, you and father we just pray that you'll continue to guide and direct us and and help us to know the directions you want us to go and what we should do and and, and those that we should reach and our, that our li life will be a lighthouse to those around us that they will sense your presence through our life father may we ever be present with you so that others might see you in us father our life is created to glorify you. And Father, may we be a glory to you today as we send up these songs of praise and adoration to you. And now as we lift our prayers and as we pray together that, that this is a special time of coming in communion with you and filling your spirit amongst us, Father. Let your Holy Spirit flow through this place. Hold nothing back from us, Father. But help us to be receptive of that. Help us to open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirit that we can receive everything that you have for us today. Because there's so many times that you have for us that we don't claim, that we don't accept and we don't receive. And so, Father, open our hearts, open our minds to receive everything that you have for us today, that you have planned in our lives for us today. We thank you, Father, for these boys and girls that line this stage, Father. What precious lives they are and what great instruments of love that you will use in their lives to reach other people, Father. We just pray as they go to school that they will be able to share the love of you that is in their hearts. And that they will be able to share words of comfort and, and hope to other boys and girls that have no hope, that have no future desire. And we just pray, Father, that you will lift them up. Be with their families as they, they minister to these boys and girls, as they teach them your word, as they share the things of, uh, of your uh, word that you have given to us in the Bible. We just pray, Father, your blessings upon each family. We pray for each family that's represented here. We know that there are sickness among uh, some that are here today and some that could not be here. We lift them up. 
We continue to pray for Sally. We pray, Father, that you will anoint her body today and take away that that fever or whatever it is that's trying to attack her again. We pray, Father, in the name of Jesus that you touch her and that you heal her. And, and for Carrie and for Deborah and, and others that need prayer, we pray for Cynthia that will be having surgery again this week. We, we lift her up to you, Father, and we pray that the surgery will go well and that you will be glorified through it. And, Father, I give you praise today for each and everything that you have accomplished we pray for the work and witness team that is back from Cuba and the things that they were able to accomplish. Even though Satan tried to stop some of it, we know that you had plans and you had a purpose. And we just pray for, for each and every uh, church that we represented and we, we saw and we prayed for. And we thank you, Father, for these that have prayed for us as we were gone. We pray now for this service. We pray for the pastor as he breaks the bread to us. Give him the words that you would have him to give in this message today. And now as the ushers come, we pray for the offering. Father, it's, it's only a portion that we give back to you of the great things that you have done for us and given to us. We thank you for the health and the ability to work so that we can receive this offering and we can give back to you. Use it, Father, to further your kingdom. We ask all of this in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As the boys and girls leave, you may be seated. We only have a couple of announcements we'd like to make this morning. Uh, don't forget there's a potluck lunch next week. In the bulletin, it, it will describe uh, what you are to bring. Bring food. That's what we're to bring. But it, it's divided out amongst us so that we'll have plenty of food for next week. It is the going away of our pastor and family, and we want to uh, share with them that one last time next Sunday. So be sure to come and bring, bring something to eat. October 20th, we will be starting a new resource um, material in your bulletin on the bottom as a place for you to put your email address so that Ms. Rochelle can connect you with that new resource. It's an awesome uh, resource that's available and uh, you'll hear more about it in the next uh, couple of weeks. But uh, be sure to give her your email address so you can get connected with this new um, resource that's available through our denomination. And I just um, wanna thank each and every one of you that prayed for our uh, district team that went to Cuba and for the things that were accomplished and the things that we were able to do for it is a different situation there. And we were able, I, Philip, Josh, Bob and I, we thank you for those prayers, for safety, for the smoothness of going in and the smoothness of coming back and being here today. We thank you for those prayers. Pastor. All right, thank you, Pastor Judy. Glad you're back. How many of you guys are grateful for God's uh, taking care of us and for sure that the Castros are back? Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm going to be uh, in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. Uh, we're going to be specifically in chapter 12. So uh, Mark chapter 12. And we're going to be talking about uh, the greatest commandment. And so... Of course, when we've ever read this passage or maybe we've heard it before, uh, some things stand out to us about 
that Jesus is going to help us uh, to look at what would be at the top of the list. If we were going to say, uh, what would we want uh, to make sure that we keep in terms of the commandments? And in Jesus' day, specific to these people, these Jewish people, uh, the law was something very important to them. Uh, and I think sometimes even that we don't understand to what extent that it was important to them. The law, as they understood um, what it meant to be a person of God, was the way that they were able to identify with being a person of God by the way that they kept the law. And so when they bring this question to Jesus, of course, we know that the teachers of the law were constantly trying to get Jesus in a predicament where they trapped him or where they caught him saying something that was going to be uh, wrong or incorrect. And they could say, we got you. See, now we, we know that what you're doing and what you're saying is not accurate. It's not right. Now, of course, when we've read the Gospels, we know that every time they try this, it backfires on them. That when Jesus comes back with whatever kind of a response uh, in their uh, attempt to try to trip him up, it, it always fails. And of course, uh, here in the passage, Jesus is going to give uh, an answer, a response to this question, to this inquiry that I think is more than just even uh, something that, you know, these people are asking. I think it's important for us to know and to examine and for sure to live out. So in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, and here's how it reads. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And just kind of stopping right there, there's a debate. There's this back and forth. And now this is very common uh, where the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, were, um, they were always wanting to start something. And as we were kind of talking about before, this individual hears all of this going on. And it says, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer... He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. What an awesome story. What, what a, uh, a depiction of Jesus on the fly, being spirit-led, being able to, uh, to, to debunk any kind of potential arguments or debates or issues. And um, I've ever asked the question, you know, to people, have you ever been in a situation where you were caught in some kind of a debate and you didn't have the words or you forgot, what, you know, or maybe later on you thought, I should have said that. Has anybody ever done that? You're like, oh, I wish I would have said that. And you're like, oh, man. But with Jesus, there was never that situation. Uh, that later on he was with his disciples and he said, I should have said that, guys. I just didn't even, 
You know, no, when we, when we look at what goes on in the Gospels, Jesus always has the right thing to say. As kind of a side note, I would say that as we stay close to the Lord and we walk in the Spirit, uh, that we should be able to be instant in season and out of season, that we always have a response for anybody who might have a question. The Bible says that, that we can and that we should. And then that way we don't miss those opportunities. Well, with Jesus, he never missed those opportunities. Here's the question, uh, which is the greatest commandment of all of them? If you were going to give a synopsis of what was the most important thing, Jesus, what would you say? And Jesus, without missing a beat, gives them this response. Now, when we talk about the idea of love, here, as Jesus is trying to get us to understand, for sure, the people that are there gathered, um, love. And when we talk about love, what is love? I mean, for sure... There's so many different ideas about this word love. Now, in the English, for sure, uh, it's a limited perspective sometimes about love. But even with a limited perspective, as opposed from English, maybe to Greek, biblical Greek, where there's other definitions for the word love. It's not just one definition, but it's different meanings. Uh, even with that one limited English idea of love, there are so many variant ideas about this word. The world understands the word love in a different way than we understand as Christians what the word love is. And, um, and yet, when you talk about the word love, people are so confused. People walk around wondering, well, you know, does it, does it mean love? Let me give you an idea. Let me give you a, kind of a, an example of this. The other day, I was at Walmart, and uh, we were in the toy section. My boys are still liking toys, so we go to the toy section. They're getting big enough now where uh, sometimes I might go and get something and say, the two of you stay together and don't talk to anybody you don't know, and you guys can stay in this section, then I'm all right with that, so I'll go. Well, uh, my boys are do what I ask them to do, and they're looking at the Legos there at Walmart. And I come back, and there is this uh, little boy, probably around five years old, in the same aisle where my boys are, and their mother is with them. And the little boy says to his mother, well, if you love me, you'll buy me these Legos. And I, I kind of stopped, and uh, I wanted to see what the mom was going to do, you know. And uh, the little boy uh, was understanding how to play the game. At probably five, four or five years old, he already kind of understood uh, whatever kind of leverage that he thought he had. He was going to play the love card. And uh, so the little boy says, if, if, you, uh, if you love me, you'll buy me these Legos. And so the mother, without missing a step, takes the Legos off of the shelf and puts them in the cart. And the little boy is smiling from ear to ear, getting what he wanted. And so they leave the aisle. And I'm thinking, man... If my boys tried that game with me, it wouldn't fly. And because I have a different definition, a different perspective of what I think love is. And many of us that kind of had a gasp here in the sanctuary, you probably, you know, don't have that same definition that this lady did, for sure. Well, what this little boy understood, probably the mother had taught him, was love is when you do something for me. If you're going to buy me these Legos, well, then you love me. He's qualifying his idea of love by what you're going to do for me. Now, that is not uncommon in the world we live in. 
you know, there's so many different other ideas of the word love. But when we talk about what the Christian understands love to be, that it has to be a different biblical definition than something that this little boy and his mother understood love to be. Now, is, this is absolutely seeped into the churches where the people who call themselves believers will qualify and define love by a similar definition, by a similar connotation. And so when we talk about love, you think about, okay, well, uh, my spouse, let's say for instance, uh, you love me if you treat me nice. You love me if you do things for me. You love me if you're going to say nice things to me. And we don't even realize to the degree that we've actually fallen into the same pitfalls as this mother and this son that I encountered at Walmart. And we've applied these kinds of ideas about love. And so the reason I know this is because I do so much marriage counseling with people where one individual in the marriage is contemplating leaving, is contemplating divorce. And, and then immediately you ask the question, what's going on in the marriage? And they say something to the effect, well, he or she is not loving me because they don't do things for me. They don't treat me the way that I feel like I need to be treated. And the idea then of love, if, we don't, if we're not careful, can become consumeristic. What I mean by that is that we view love as what we're going to get, what we're going to receive. If you love me, you'll do something for me. If you love me, you'll treat me a certain way. And if you don't, if it's the opposite, well then obviously you don't love me. Now, many of us that are listening this morning, whether here, I don't know if we're on Facebook this morning, but some of us have fallen into this kind of a trap. And what we're expecting out of love is that it's going to be something that's going to be advantageous for me. Notice Jesus here in our text in no way, shape, or form talks about the reception of love, but how it's going to be given. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, our ideas of love. Now, there may be some people in here, you say, you know what, I already kind of understand this and I'm living this out. Well, I want to say to you, well, God bless you and that's wonderful. And, and it doesn't mean at all that if you understand it, that you can't grow in love. The Bible talks about that we should grow in love, love not only as we love God, that should be growing, that should be something that's living and, and active. But when we talk about even loving people, that we should be growing in a, in a love relationship with those people that mean something to us. And uh, so if you're somebody this morning, you say, you know what, if I'm honest, I've become very much self-absorbed. And my understanding about love, if, if I was to be introspective this morning, then um, I'm kind of just falling into this trap that you're talking about. So that's what we're going to discuss this morning. Now, Jesus here in his response um, to this teacher of the law, and, I, and I, I'm interested that, that if all these things, when he, um, when he comes to Jesus as being a teacher of the law, he regards Jesus as a rabbi himself, and he has a, an attitude to come under. Now, this wasn't always the case with all of the teachers of the law. When the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and other uh, depictions and other stories in the Gospels, sometimes they would call him rabbi or sometimes they would call him teacher. But they were doing it in a way to almost kind of set him up, kind of like a bowling pin because they wanted to knock him down. But here in this passage, when you uh, see the, 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 the wisdom of this man, and Jesus actually recognizes his wisdom, that I like to, to think that, you know, he really regarded him as someone who knew a lot. And he wanted to uh, get his answer, to get his response here. Now, 
I'm not going to really go into this deep, but there are people sometimes in the church the same way that in Jesus' day, these teachers of the law, uh, that sometimes they really want an answer, that they're really curious and they really want to listen, and they really not only just want to listen for the sake of cognitively knowing something, but they want to, an answer so that they can take it and own it for themselves, that there is a legitimate thirst and hunger for uh, a godly uh, answer or godly wisdom. Now, as I digress just a tad here, uh, I want to say that this morning, there are some people that will ask questions just for the sake of creating an argument or a debate. This is what this guy walked into, right? The Bible says that he walked into this debate, and it was this going back and forth, and this is what he witnesses. And so when he asked the question, uh, he could have slipped in very easily uh, into this camp of people who are just asking a question to create a problem. Now, I want to say to you that if you're an argumentative person and you're somebody who likes to create debates, that you're not being uh, godly and you're not being, uh, you know, something that the Bible would uh, call a godly person. A godly person wants to grow and a godly person wants to learn and know more. And so when they ask the question, they're willing to actually listen for the purposes of growing in their faith. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith. You might be in the faith for a long time and you know a lot about the Bible. But there should always be a, a, an attitude of teachability. And, uh, and so if there's this kind of a, a, a spirit in you, some kind of an attitude that you want to put people in their place and you want to trap them in their words, you're not being like Jesus, you're being like the Pharisees. That one was free. That was a public service announcement brought to you by your friendly pastor. Y'all awake this morning? Is everybody awake? All right, good. Um, in any event, this guy really wants to know the truth. This guy really wants to hear uh, what Jesus thinks. And, um, and so he says, well, okay, if you, you ask the question, I'm going to give you the answer, which is also a good thing that when you ask a question, especially when you ask Jesus, you better be prepared for the answer. This is a good answer. This is the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, obviously, he quotes from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, right? Uh, but why was that important in Deuteronomy, and why is that equally important during the time of Jesus? Why? Because they were in a lot of different directions. There were people who had different ideas and different opinions and uh, different uh, thoughts about something that is very important. Now, when you have the law, and you're talking about how the Jews saw the law, I mean, there were all kinds of people within the camp of Judaism that were trying to, you know, teach something and make something important. Well, make sure that you're doing this and make sure you're checking that off the list and make sure that you're... And so the people were inundated. They were overburdened by so many law. Now, some... The laws we talk about not only were relegated to the Ten Commandments or the things that you find even in the Pentateuch, but we're talking about some of the man-made laws that in case we had missed some of the law, let's go ahead and add some of these other ones so that make sure that we cover everything. And so you're talking about if you were someone uh, that would come to synagogue and, and you were hearing the teachers of the law, there were so many different things that were being heaped upon these people that after a while, they're kind of like, ah, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what's important. Now, in church, do you think that that's ever important? Do you think that that ever happens in the churches? For when you come maybe to a, a, 
a, a, a service or a sermon time and you're thinking, man, how in the world do I even keep up with all of the rules and all of the laws? When I was brand new in the faith, I didn't know anything about wearing a ball cap in the sanctuary. I didn't know anything about that. Never heard anything, never gone to real, I mean, the church where, you know, they had gone over these things. <laughs> so I just come to church with my Dodgers ball cap. Happy to be in church. And there was this one individual I remember. He'd been in the church, he went to church, I think, with Moses or something. He'd been in the church forever and ever. And walk in the sanctuary, and this guy meets me right at the doors, and he says, we don't wear hats in the sanctuary. He takes my hat off, hits me over the head with it, and throws it in my chest. And I walked in there, and I thought, well, I'm glad the Lord has done the work in my heart, because I would have knocked that guy out before. Rules, laws, I didn't know anything about that thing. And I mean, if I was even going to ask where do I find that in the scripture? You know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm brand new to the faith, and, I, and I, didn't, I didn't hear that rule. I didn't hear that law. There were other laws, other rules, you know. Uh, if you had tattoos, you better cover them up. If you had any kind of, uh, uh, kind of things that were, you know, inappropriate, deemed inappropriate in the sanctuary, well, then you better make sure that you're not doing those things. Well, how do I know what they are? Well, maybe I ought to go to that guy that threw my hat at me. Maybe he knows. But maybe the guy that threw the hat at me might have a different opinion than the other person on the other side of the sanctuary might have. And everybody walks into this place, and we have different ideas about what we think church is supposed to be, what it means to be a Christian. And I'm telling you, after a while, the people of the world don't want to be a part of church. And I'll tell you why. Because they can't just come in and just find the Lord. Because they have to sort through all of the problems that the people who call themselves the people of God bring and heap upon other people to carry. If I was going to grab anything from this passage this morning, I would say, you know what? I need to know what would be important to tell someone. That if they walked in the doors of our, of our sanctuary, if they came in off the street, if I was going to go take the gospel to them, what would I want to convey to these people? That's, I mean, it's a huge question. This guy is asking Jesus to simplify it. Don't make it bigger. Don't make it heavier. Can you help us to understand what it is that I need to make sure that I understand about the commandments? Who better to ask than Jesus? If there was someone that knew what would be important, it would be this guy. And so he asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you. Israel... Listen up. The Lord your God is one. He's not divided. One, the idea of him being one means that he's got one mind. He's got one heart. Jesus would talk about the, the, the singularity of God, that, that there is a united purpose, even within the the. The, the discussion of the Trinity, that they're, they're one, they're not three, they're one. And when we talk about this idea of the Lord God being one, that in order for us to be on the same page, listen, listen, 
In order for us as a church to be on the same page, to be one, we need to come under the leadership of this God who is one. He is not divided. If we talk about in the churches, why is it that we're divided within the confines of one church or we're talking about the church as a whole? What is going on that we're all splintered? Is it possible that maybe we're not following God, but we're following what we have constructed God to be? What if we said, God, not what I think that you're supposed to be. God, not what some man has taught me that you are. But that, God, you would reveal yourself to me. And that I would be able to glean from you, the author and the perfecter of my faith, who you are. When he asked this question, and Jesus gives this response, and he starts off with talking about that the Lord is one, then the residue from that fact is that his people will be one. That you and I would never have to try to be intentional about being united. We're going to have to work on being united. We should work on that. We should go to seminars and read books on being united. It requires that his people as individuals are one with God. That's what Jesus' prayer was for us. Do you remember in the Gospel of John when he prayed for his disciples and then he prayed for all the believers? And this came out of his mouth in the prayer. Father, that they might be one with you as you and I are one. If God's will is that we be one with him, if Jesus' prayer was that specific that we be one with the Father, then there shouldn't be any difficulty with us being one. And this is why this is important, because when we go out into the world, that they would know us by the love that he has put in us. And it's not a different thing. It's not a different message. It's not a different love. It's crazy because there have been different places and different situations where I'll meet up with someone, total stranger, and we get to talking, and before that question comes out, are you a Christian, are you a believer? We are already one. Have you ever, has this ever happened to you? Where you just kind of meet this total stranger and all of a sudden there's this commonality, there's this witness of the Spirit, I don't, whatever you want to call it, but there's this oneness between you and that individual. And why? How does that happen? Because you have the Holy Spirit and I have the Holy Spirit and it's not a different spirit. And it doesn't even matter that this person's a Baptist and that person's a Nazarene and this one's a Methodist and that one's a non-denominational. It doesn't matter. Why? Because it's the Spirit of God. That's why it's important that when Jesus answers this question, he's going to define at the very onset, 
getting from Deuteronomy, the Lord, your God, is one. Are we one? We're one if we have God living in us. The flip side of this, and I've, met my, I, I've had these experiences with people where we're not one. And I'm not talking about the people of the world. We already understand that we have nothing in common with the people of the world because they're lost. But I've encountered this with people who call themselves believers. And the love of the Father is not in them. And it doesn't matter how much they call themselves Christians. There's just not any evidence. There's not any kind of a a real manifestation of God's spirit on their lives. It just It's not there. And a person can say, well, no, I'm a Christian, or I go to church. But if they have not the love of the Father, then we can't resolve that, that you are a Christian, that I am a Christian if I don't have God's love in me. And, and it's not being judgmental, and it's not being mean or harsh or none of that. We, we are known because we have the love of God in us. They will know you by the love that's in you. This is over and over and over again that you'll find in the New Testament. You can find this all, all over, 1 John. But if you have not the love of the Father, then the only thing that we can resolve is that there's not the presence of God in there. Why? Because God is love. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Question. Have you ever had a hard time loving someone? That's every human experience. I don't care how old or young you are doesn't matter where you are in life. There's some people in our lives that either have been or are or will be hard to love. Understand about what Jesus is saying here. As with all of the commandments, God has allowed for us to have a free will. Now, please pay attention. This is important. This is something to grab a hold of and, and really just process through. Love is a choice. And I don't care how difficult any individual that you encounter or for future, these people you haven't met yet, they're going to be a pain in the neck. They're going to be a burden. They're going to be a hardship. It's going to be difficult. I want to say to you this morning, and I hope that it will be retained in your memory banks when you encounter such an individual, that love is a choice. And if, while somebody might say, well, that's not new. I've heard that before. Sometimes the things that we have heard and know, we still have to practice on a day-in, day-out basis and, con and continue to move forward and make a decision and a choice, not even day by day, sometimes minute by minute. It's a choice to love someone. 
And the reason that's important is because there's so many people that blame it on the other person why they don't love that person. This is the difference between God's love. I want you to grab a hold of this. The difference between the love that is found and originates in the imagination and the willpower of mankind and the love that originates in God's heart are two different things. The love that God gives is the kind of love that is selfless and it has no limitations at all whatsoever. That's why it's important to have God's love, not just my love. Not just this kind of a limited type of a love, but it's this kind of an unlimited fountain that continues to flow in me and through me so that when these people come into our lives that are difficult to love, my love for them, grab a hold of this, guys. My love for them, if it's God's love in me and through me, is not contingent on what they're going to do for me. If you love me, you'll buy me these Legos, Mom. This is what we do all the time if we're not careful. When we say, well, a selfless kind of love is that it doesn't matter if you ever love me back. It doesn't matter how you treat me. It doesn't matter what you say to me. Because my love for you doesn't come based on how you're going to do something for me. My love for you comes from God. And it's untouchable by how you treat me. That's why Jesus could hang on a cross and pray for the people who were doing it to him. Because his love for them was not tied to how he was going to be treated by them. Now, if you're sitting here this morning or you're listening on Facebook and you're thinking that's impossible. That's, there's no way I could do that. Did you guys see this thing that happened, uh, uh, this uh, police officer in Dallas who, I guess, allegedly walked into, she thought it was her apartment, is what she says, and she shot this guy to death? Well, the, it was a big old trial. I mean, it made national headlines, and I don't know if you guys saw at the sentencing. Did you guys see this? So the brother, everybody, well, if you don't know, there was the brother of this man that had been killed, and he gets up on the, on the stand, or he had an opportunity to speak, or whatever, and so he gets up and he starts talking about, I don't want anything bad for you. Uh, I love you. With the love of the Lord, I love you. And, uh, and I only want good for you. In fact, I, I hope, it's not up to me, but I would hope that you don't even have to go to jail. I mean, I don't know how many of my friends on Facebook uh, copied. Is that what they call it? Copying it? Where they share it, Whatever. And they just kept sharing it. And I would scroll down, and there's one, and there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. And then what, what intrigued me was some of the comments. And so you go and you look at some of the comments, you know. You watch the video, and then you want to make a comment, or you put a thumbs up, or a smiley face, or whatever. And how many people on there would say, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. There's no way. I mean, I don't know how many comments that I saw like that. And then there were the comments underneath that said, man, that's the love of God. That's the power of God. That's God's love. That's what Jesus did. Or something that, and, and so there was this, there, there was these comments and then there was those comments. And you're like, man, there's a contrast between those two. The people who are able to appreciate what 
this young man did and, and, and tie it not to this guy because it wasn't about him, is it? I mean, there is not any way at all that you could look at that young man and say That's, that came from him. Because immediately the people who posted there's no way, these are the ones that are completely separated from God's love that way. They don't understand it. They are not able to comprehend it. But when we talk about the love of God, that's what we talk about when it's selfless. And there is no way for any human being sitting here or standing up here talking, it's not possible for us to have that kind of love without God. If you're thinking about a person specifically in your mind's eye who is difficult to love, and immediately when you start thinking about them, you get heartburn. You think, ugh, to have to love someone, that guy, I don't like that guy. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they've done to my family. You don't know how they've treated me. They've, they've, they've abused my love for years and decades, and I've tried and tried and tried and tried, and I'm done with that person. If you can come to the end of a point of loving a person, then I want to say to you this morning that you are loving them in the limitation of human love. That's a hard one to swallow this morning. Because if you call yourself a believer this morning, you think, well, I'm a Christian, but it's just that person's been difficult to love. What it requires is that we're going to have to come to God and say, God, where I'm, where, where I'm coming to the end with this individual, I need you. Because I can't with this person. There's not any way possible for me. I can't understand it. I can't comprehend it. And I've run out. That's real for us this morning, you guys. That's, I mean, that's not just, that's not just oh, pie in the sky ideal stuff. And, and if you can't live that, well, then you're some kind of weird situation all of us have been there I have my hand up in the air for a reason I, we've all been there with people and you think I can't love that person where we can't God can and that doesn't mean that there's this compartmentalization between us and God so we say well I'm done loving them but at least God loves them What I'm saying and what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that the love that we have for God, that that same love that's lavished upon us helps us to love people that are sometimes unlovable even over our own limitations. And what it requires then, if you're in that situation even now, is that you go to God and you say, God, I can't. But I know you can in me. I know you can through me. And that's where we get to love being a choice. That where this person that has exhausted every single ounce of love that you had to give them, that you're able in his strength to make yourself love this person over and above what they do or don't do for you. Does everybody understand what I'm saying to you this morning? Because there's not going to be any way for us to love the unlovable people in our lives if it's not for God in us and through us. If you say this morning, well, been there, done that. I've gone to altar after altar after altar after altar 
in every single service that I ever go to trying to love this person, and I keep running out. Well, let me just say this to you. That's why the altars are here. It's so that if you need to use them every single Sunday to love this person for the next week, well, then use them again. And if you need to pray at the side of your bed every single morning to love that person, well, then you kneel at the side of your bed for, for God's help to love that person. And if you need to pray several times a day to love that person, well, then that's what you do. If that's what you need in order to love that individual, well, then do it. I can't, Lord, I'm getting ready to strangle that individual. Well, then get on your face and don't strangle that individual. You overcome these kinds of feelings or thoughts with God's power. You wouldn't be the first person in the world to want to choke somebody. Slap them. Kick them. I remember when I used to get whooped with the belt when I was a kid. I'd go into my room and close the door and I'd be wishing bad things on my mom for whooping me. Lord, give her a stomach ache. You wouldn't be the first person who ever thought those kind of thoughts. But what overcomes those kinds of feelings and thoughts is the overwhelming presence of God in your life. That in those times where you're limited, that you're able to get on your face before the one who created you, the one who can give you all the power and the strength, and he conveys to you how much he's loved you. Imagine there were times where God wanted to choke you or me. It's a good thing, right? Because if God chokes you, then you're going to get choked out. Imagine there were times where God said, you know what, I've had enough of this individual. He's just a waste of time. But God didn't do that with me, and he didn't do that with you. And it's in those times when you get with him that you realize, you know what, if God loved me as rotten as I was, then how could I not love this person who's been rotten to me? That's what happens when you get with him. See, that's why a lot of times people, don't, they don't have the power to be able to love the unlovable because they don't spend time with God. When you spend time with the Lord, I'm not talking about just token time. I'm talking real time. I'm talking about that you allow God to deal with you. How about this one? You're going to go to that individual, uh, to the Lord about that individual. It's unlovable. It's difficult to be around. And you start, Lord, help this person, Lord, because he really just needs a lot of help. And, and uh, help him to change and help him. To, and the Lord says, okay, well, I'm going to change you. How about that? No, no, but Lord, you're not listening. Change him and change her and help her and do this for this person and that person, whatever. And God's like, you know what? It's not about that person. It's about you. I've ever wondered, has it ever occurred to any Christian that the reason those unlovable people in your life, and you're not going to like when I say this, but God has allowed those unlovable, difficult people in your life, not necessarily that you could change them, but through their ugly, sorry attitude that God wants to change you. And we keep asking God to remove them or to change them. And God's like, I'm not removing them or changing them. Because you know what? God, God, God's interested in, in growing you. He wants to take you from this place. I mean, you know, you ever thought about how great and wonderful we all are? I'm pretty awesome. I'm an amazing Christian. And God's like, man, you have so much growing to do, buddy. 
And in your prayer, you don't even realize how in, in, immature that you actually are. How much growing that we all need. And God's like, well, don't worry about them. I'm not removing them, by the way. In fact, you might have to spend more time with them. Oh, I don't want to do that. But God knows. Do you believe that this morning that God knows better than you? That his ways are not our ways? If you say this morning, I, I want God to grow me in love. Oh, yeah? Okay, well, let me give you this unlovable person. Let's see about that. Well, Lord, I, I wanted you to teach me a different way. Isn't there a good book you can recommend? We don't want to grow that way. I don't want to grow that way. I mean, it, it, there's that, uh, what was this? Uh, there was a product called the Ab Lounger. The Ab Lounger. I want you to let that, you know what a lounger is? What's a lounger? It's like a recliner, isn't it? Isn't that what that is? Like, a, like okay, now women, let me just, uh, just as a side note, just to have some fun in church. My wife won't let me have a re recliner in the, in the living room. She says they're ugly. Does any other wives think that? Okay, that's cool. You got a point, honey. I'm sorry. I just, I had to get a second opinion here. What if it's a really nice, classy-looking recliner? Is there such a thing? The men, how many, let me ask, that was the wrong people to ask. How many men think that a recliner looks really good in a, in a living room? Anybody? The ones that aren't raising their hands are like, Ready for the elbow, you know. Anyway, a recliner, a lounger, right? You what, do you, what do you attribute to a lounger when you think about a recliner? What do you think? Chilling, relaxing, falling asleep, watching TV, right? You think about ease and comfort and leisure. Does anybody equate a lounger or a recliner to work? Like if you have to work, to make a recliner work or, or function, you, it's broken. You need a new one. It's supposed to just be, I mean, now they have the buttons and they're electronic. Have you guys gone to the movies lately? And they have a recliner at the movie. That's like, man, that's, what's better than that? You got a drink holder? You're there, man. They might even bring you some food and, man, it's right there. An ab lounger. That seems contradictory. You can build a six-pack. I have a six-pack. It's just under a lot of other stuff. But I guess the, the thought here is that you could create this kind of a look where you have a, the abs of steel or, or a superhero by relaxing. And people bought it. Like people actually, this infomercial would come on at O Dark 30 and people are on the phone saying, I need this product in my life because I want the abs, but I don't want to work. I want the results without actually putting in the work. This is what we think about love. You think, I want to be able to love people, but I don't want to put in the work. Have you ever thought about this idea Jesus is giving us here? Love the Lord your God, verse 30. Love the Lord your God 
when it's convenient and easy and everybody loves you back and everything is just hunky-dory. Is that what it said there? Does, does, when you read this and you talk about choice, right, it's a choice that I have to exercise, it's not going to be an easy choice all the time. Because notice what he says, whether it's, whether it's um, uh, heart or soul or mind or strength, what's it accompanied with? Every single time you see the word all. Everything. Did anybody ever tell you when you were uh, either playing sports or doing uh, studying or uh, anything that you're going to work that you should do it with your all? What does that mean? When somebody told you to do something with your all, what did that mean? What were they trying to tell you? What were they trying to convey? Give your best. Give a full speed effort. In order to give this kind of a, of a admonition, this kind of a command, Jesus says that we should do it with all. Okay, now let's go back to this unlovable person. Yeah, I guess I got to love you, but I really don't feel like it. Don't really want to. Can a person feel when somebody's not loving with all? Have you ever felt that? Somebody's almost loving you out of obligation? When somebody is loving with all, it's not detectable that that's what they're loving you with. You wouldn't be able to tell that someone is loving you even if you're unlovable when they love you with all. Because a full speed effort, it can't be pretended. When we had, um, I was coaching before I was a pastor and I was an athlete before I was a coach. And if there was in basketball, the worst thing that a person could do it was to go half speed. And when the lights are on and there's only five guys on the team and five guys on the other team and everybody's watching, there's no place to hide if you're going half speed. A full speed effort, you didn't have to tell anybody you were going full speed because when a ball's on the floor, you're diving for it and you're wrestling for it. You might have to try to save a ball and you jump into the stands onto people. I don't know if you guys ever saw Shaquille O'Neal play. He's huge. He's seven foot two and 300 pounds, maybe 350, I don't know. When he played for the Celtics, he might have been 400. He was huge. Well, one of the stops that he made was in Phoenix and he was toward the end of his career and he was pretty big, pretty big guy. And one of the plays is the ball is going out, and he goes to dive for the ball. Shaquille O'Neal, I mean, seven foot two, 400 pounds probably at the time in Phoenix. And he goes diving for the ball over his teammates into the stands. So he dives over where the team is and jumps into the stands. And I mean, he took people out. I don't even remember if he saved the ball. 
but he tried. Smashed up people's popcorn and drinks, and there was a mess everywhere. He gets back on the floor and runs down the court. Probably around two quarters later, same kind of situation presents itself where the ball is getting kind of toward the same place where he dove this first time, and the ball goes over there, and it was the, the funniest thing. You can YouTube this. He goes to, to, to jump into the stands, and it was like the Red Sea. Everybody got up and got out of the way. Clear the space. And he didn't end up trying to save that ball. I don't know if maybe there was too much pain expended in the first try. And everybody was laughing. I mean, even the people from the other team were laughing, and everybody was cracking up because, you know, it just, it, just the way it looked. It was funny. Even Shaquille O'Neal laughed. He's kind of like, what? A full-speed effort, guys. I'm going to tell you something, that when we give a full effort, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all. Do you think God knows? It's interesting that a lot of people live their lives to try to fool people. I love God with all. But God knows their heart. God knows if that's really true. You know what it means to love God with all? With everything? I don't think that there's a person in this room that should say yes. Not, not me. Not, not any of us. Because to love the Lord, our God, with all, is not something that we can even wrap our brain around. I would like to ask God's perspective on this one. Not mine, not my pastor, not my spouse. Lord, am I loving you with all? And then, and then, listen, for all of us believers to let actually the, the Holy Spirit would write on our hearts. And all of a sudden we realize, I'm not loving God with my time. Or I'm not loving God with my attitude. Or I'm not loving the Lord with my money. Because the idea of all, as, as we should understand it, is as God reveals it. The idea of loving God with all has nothing to do with trying to compare myself with the way Linda loves God. Well, am I loving God more than Linda is? Nope. That's not the question. It's, a wrong, it's the wrong idea. Well, I love God more than Ashley. I love God more than Paul. I love God more than uh, Jennifer because I give more. I, I'm, at, I'm at church more often. I give up more things than they give up. They're not the standard. This morning, the Holy Spirit is perfect to write on your conscience because He knows exactly who you are and who you, who, who you are having a difficult time with, all the struggles that you have that you haven't even conveyed to the closest person that you have in your life. And when, when, the, when Jesus says, you, do, you must love the Lord your God with all, the all is measured in what the Holy Spirit reveals to you where you live. The idea of loving God with all is less about the all, and it's more about the all.
What has God revealed to you? Am I loving God with everything that he's revealed? Is there anything I'm holding back? Am I ready to dive into the crowd and save the ball? Am I playing it safe? Better not jump over those chairs. Love the Lord your God with all, with everything, your best, with an unwavering commitment that goes beyond any other love relationship that you have on this earth. Do you love God more than anyone? That's a, that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, for any human being to answer. We think about our kids. Think about our spouse. If God were to say, I want to call them to be with me. I've thought about that. I've met with people before who have lost a child. Who understand firsthand what that means. That God is their primary relationship, even over and above those kids that they love, that they value with everything that they have. That the idea, the thought that, well, I'm not going to love God because he took my kids. Job dealt with that, didn't he? Do I love the Lord with everything? I could preach a long time on that. There's so many different ways we could go with that. The second, verse 31, love your neighbor as yourself. The idea of loving the person sitting next to you did not come first. In order to love the person that you work with, that you live with, you encounter on the road or at Walmart or Starbucks or wherever else, does not happen because we venture to love them at the expense of loving God. Or if that we love God as more kind of just like a side issue. But you and I have no way to love the people that are around us if we don't first love God. And so he says here that we should love our neighbor as ourself, that we love our neighbor as ourself as we love God and are loved by God first. Then and only then will we be able to give out love. Now, let's go back to this illustration at Walmart. This child who says, I'm going to define the love that you have for me, and I'm going to qualify it whether you do something for me first. That mom, to be able to take those Legos and put them in the cart and to subscribe to this notion that love is qualified by what I'm going to do for you is to surrender herself to the wrong kind of a definition. 
This is why this is important, because if you love God and he defines what love is for you, well, then when somebody else tries to tell you, you don't love me unless you do this for me, or you don't love me unless you give this to me, we won't find ourselves in those situations because we don't allow people to define love for us. We've allowed God to do it first. I can't be held hostage by what you think I'm supposed to love you, uh, the, way, the way that I'm supposed to love you. There are people in relationships all the time and in churches that struggle with this one. Well, if you love me, well, then you'll do this for me. Oh, okay, well, I better do that then. We had one guy in one of our uh, churches where he was a believer, full speed. He'd just given his heart to Christ. His wife was not. His wife was not a believer. She would come casually once in a while, and every time she was there, she, she looked like she was miserable, did not want to be there. It was like pulling teeth. When he was there by himself, he usually sat close to the front. When she came, they sat in the back because she wanted to leave whenever the, the music started to close the service. She wanted to be gone. She put this kind of a definition on him, and she said, listen, you either love me or you love the church. Which one is it? Do you love me or the church? Because before you started coming to the church, it seemed like you loved me more than anything else. And now it feels like you love the church more. So he came to me, he asked me, what, I, what should I do? She wants me to come to church once a month. And I said, well, she's got faulty thinking. The issue is not about church, it's about God. And I'm going to ask you the question, do you love God more than you love your wife? Well, I love God more. And I said, well, if you're ever put in a situation where somebody's going to make you choose, then God has to always be number one. I love my wife. She's my best friend in the whole world. In so many ways. I could be here talking about that a long time as well. If my wife ever put me in a situation, and she's in how many years? We're almost 20 years now? Married? That's crazy. Right? If she made me choose, she knows who's going to win. It's got to be that way. If I tell her, I know you don't like this, I know you don't want this, I know this is the, the, the strife and the hardship and all of the source of the fighting and all of that. This is what God has said. I'm going to put this off to the side because I love you. Then I'm not loving her. I'm harming her. I'm damaging her, even if it doesn't feel like that. In fact, it would be the opposite. In terms of feelings, understand this. Love is not feelings. It's not a Hallmark card. Love is not about chocolates and flowers. That can be an expression of all that, but that's not what that is. 
How many married people? Love isn't even always romance. In fact, have you been married for a while? Romance? Okay, well, that's, that's nice. But every single day, waking up with this individual and living life, sometimes it's just choice. All the newlyweds are like, really? People are thinking about getting married. And yeah, well, you know what? I could tell you that even over and above the romance, Jennifer and I have the most amazing love relationship that we've ever had. And we've gone through stuff. So I say about the choice, I'm going to say, listen, if you're going to make me choose, the best way that I can love you is to choose God even if you don't like it. This mom at Walmart, could you imagine? What would have been the right response? I love you, little buddy, whether you understand it or not. And I'm going to love you so much that I'm not going to give you what you think you want. And especially because you want to use that as a manipulation tool. And that would damage you now and for sure as we move on. Because that kid is going to be a problem. And that kid could kick and scream and complain and whine all they want. You ever, you ever seen that at Walmart? Have you ever heard that at Walmart? You're in, the, you're in the food section of a super Walmart and the toy section's on the opposite side of Walmart and I've heard kids that loud. Pitching a fit. Let me, let me just kind of, as we get ready to close all of this this morning, is if you think that loving people the way Jesus says to love people as yourself that if you think it's going to be easy and it's going to be effortless and people are just going to pat you on the back and put you on their shoulders and haul you off the field like a Super Bowl winning coach, if that's what you think, then you're smoking something. Love is a choice. And to love God and love people, it has to be on His terms, not ours. I can't love you the way I think I should love you. i got to love you the way God wants me to love you. If you're having a hard time with your spouse and you're trying to, you're trying to um, placate their, their, their feelings and their emotions and you're trying to love them as they would define it, not the way God would define it, you're not loving that person. You're loving yourself. The reason I can make that kind of a statement is because when I love my wife because I want to keep this peace that kind of love is steeped in selfishness because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to have to sleep on the couch. I don't want to have to deal with her bad attitude and her silent treatment. I don't want to deal with that. So I'm just going to give her what she wants so that I can get. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is to love somebody the way God's wanting you to love that individual. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of pain and suffering, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I'm going to tell you something, that that's the thing that that kid needs. That that person that you're, that's hard to love, that, that's what they need. And I'm going to love you over and above how that's going to impact me. How many parents? Do you ever have to discipline your kids and it hurts you to have to discipline them? You're like, I don't want to have to do this. I'd rather just not ground them. I'd rather just not have to see them hurt. 
When your parents used to say, this is going to hurt me more, it's going to hurt you. I'd be like, yeah, right. That's a bunch of baloney. Don't tell me that. Did any kids ever get mad when your parents would tell you that? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I'd be like, you know what? I don't want to hear that. But then when you became a parent, you knew exactly what that was. You knew exactly what that meant. And, you're, and like with my kids, I'm like, I want to spank them just for making, them, make, making me spank them. So I'm going to spank you for what you just did, but I want to spank you more for making me do this because I have to do this now. So the first one's for that, and the second one's for this one. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to have to discipline them because I don't want to see them go through what they're going to have to go through. But why do we do it? Because they have to learn. Because down the road, as adults, they're going to realize, well, this is the right thing to do. Why? Because my parents were willing to inflict the pain necessary for me to learn it. And in order to love people that are unlovable, sometimes you have to love them and realize that you're going to also have pain and you're going to have some suffering. But you have to forego all of the pleasure and all the easy, first of all, for him, and then for them, and oh, by the way, for you, for me. Everybody benefits. If we take the easy way out, nobody benefits. Not in the long run. Let me just say this, that if you're an individual, you say, listen, if I love my spouse and I put God first and then them next, and it's going to cause problems and issues and difficulty, so instead what I want to do is I want to just give them what they want, let me tell you what, that's called pseudo-peace. It's not real peace. And I'll tell you why. Because the same way with that child, if it's the Legos today at Walmart, guess what's going to happen at the next trip at Walmart? Guess what's going to happen when they turn teenagers? The reason it's called pseudo-peace, it's a fake kind of a peace, is because we're just compromising. And they'll get more and more and worse and worse. And from a spiritual standpoint, guys, let me just say that there are people that need us to die on the cross. The way that Jesus died on the cross for our benefit, sometimes God needs us to die on the cross so that somebody else can benefit. I'm not willing, Lord. I don't want to die on the cross. I don't want to have to crucify this flesh. It's too hard. It's hurting me. It's causing me issues at the house. And God's like, well, it's time to hemorrhage so that someone else can see what real selfless, sacrificial love looks like. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As the musicians get ready to play, the altars are open this morning, and I, I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're struggling. Maybe there's some unlovable people in your life. You've been struggling with some different 
topics or ideas that this morning the Holy Spirit has just begun to speak to you about right on your conscience. I want to invite you to come this morning if you want. The altars are open. But you could pray and leave your own limited love and enter in his unlimited love. That where you come to the end, that God says, okay, now it's time to take you over the threshold. As the musicians play and you want to come, feel free to do that. Shit. 
thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness in our lives. Where we have found ourselves frustrated. In some cases where we've wanted to throw in the towel. This morning, we readily recognize that we need you. We need your love in our lives. We need your power and your strength to love people. And some of those people are difficult. But God, you didn't call us to just love the people that are easy. Not only did you call us to love with all, but you called us to love all. And so where we're limited, Lord God, we know you are unlimited. Therefore, we call upon you to help us. Help us to go beyond the point of pain. Help us to love even over and above it. And when we feel those times, our knees buckling, and we feel like we can't stand, may your Holy Spirit come to undergird us that we might be able to love even so. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for your word. And as we get ready to go in different directions, would you watch after us? Would you guide and direct us? Would you give us your Holy Spirit so that we might not only know that we're different, but that we might make a difference in this world as well? So we thank you, we love you, and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Before you leave, find someone you haven't said hello to and greet them. God bless all of you, you're dismissed.